It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Over the many years that I have been in the food and wellness industry, there's been one thing that has been sort of a, I suppose, something I've been known for, but also something that people have vilified me for a little bit. And that's been my use of products that would be probably known as superfoods or super herbs. A lot of things that are marketed in the the food industry seem to have kind of the word super attached in front of them. And there's real, there's really not a super clear definition of exactly what a superfood is. I think years ago, Whitney, I remember reading a definition of superfoods that, that seemed to kind of encapsulate it best for me, which was like super nutrient dense, highly mineralized and grown in pristine conditions that are generally, you know, heirloom. These are these are foods that are not by and large monocropped or part of giant farming corporations and you know, you see the label of of superfood and super herbs on things like goji berries and spirulina, ashwagandha, reishi mushroom. I mean, there's a lot of things kind of under this umbrella. This all ties in in the reason I'm bringing up superfoods in particular and a lot of these herbs and these products is years ago I remember reading an article, this was probably five or six years ago, Wit, about how Westerners were consuming so much quinoa and chia seeds that the farmers that were actually growing the quinoa crops and the chia seeds in South America, specifically in places like Peru, were not even able to afford or purchase those products for themselves because the demand and the price of these things were so high for Western consumer appetites. And I remember that that hitting me in a very particular way, right? Of my God, you know, if the farmers who are growing these superfoods for, you know, wealthy Americans and North Americans to consume, and they can't even afford it or have access to it themselves, something about that didn't seem right to me. Well, fast forward to recently, a few episodes ago, a couple of weeks ago, actually, you brought up something that I was certainly completely ignorant to, and you had admitted you were too. You were in a clubhouse room where there were people talking about a lot of the struggle that's been going on with farmers in India and how there are new laws trying to be passed that are is essentially going to pass a lot of the control of seed and crop over to giant corporate interests there. And Indian farmers are trying to protest this. They're trying to maintain their sovereignty, their livelihoods. There's been a lot of suicides there. It's a pretty hardcore situation that I wasn't fully informed about. I, I knew nothing about. You actually, a little bit of behind the scenes here, we, we have a list that Whitney had put together of different topics we want to talk about here on the podcast. Some topics we get from you, dear listener, you and people like you send us suggestions for episodes, but we like to read articles. We like to research, see what's going on in the world. So this brings us to the present moment where Whitney had found this article on bitchmedia.org, which we will link to in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. If you have not been to our website yet, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where you can find the show notes for this episode. 
any of the links, books, articles, perspectives, studies we mentioned in any episode you can find in the transcript there. So this article, Whitney, was interesting because not only did it educate me more on what's happening currently with the struggle for Indian farmers to maintain a living wage, maintain control over their seed and crop, and, and not have these giant megalithic corporations sort of running the agriculture industry there. The perspective on this article was that wellness influencers owe Indian farmers their solidarity. And that really got me. That was like, wow, this is, this is really, really fascinating. And before I put the ball back over to you, Whitney, I just want to share a little bit more in case the listener doesn't know a little bit of the background that I didn't know, was that these proposed new laws in India, if, if they actually are enacted, that Indian farmers will be much more susceptible to exploitation by private multinational corporations that will gain control and able to regulate the price of their crops. And apparently, they would also lose the protection of something called Mandis, M-A-N-D-I-S, which is, I guess, a, a government-regulated markets where farmers sell their crops for you know a price that they set, ensuring that they have their basic income needs met. But this goes into you know the fact that with the rise of things like yoga, especially because it's been growing in popularity since the 60s and 70s, we see a lot of white practitioners who are practicing things like Ayurveda. And selling things like I mentioned, ashwagandha or turmeric or holy basil. And I've certainly done the same thing. I've talked about year, for years the benefits of these things. But this goes on. The, the position of this article is basically like when you're profiting off things like yoga and Sanskrit and mantras and selling your beads and selling Hindu deities and superfoods that come from this culture, why are you not standing up for the very people that gave you these elements of your wellness practice, right? That, that this is the country where it was born. But moreover, the actual farmers that are growing the ashwagandha and the holy basil and the turmeric. And so I think, you know, this is a really interesting call to think about another topic we've covered in the past, Whitney, which is cultural appropriation. People who are taking ancient practices from other cultures ancient foods, ancient religions. I mean, you go to any yoga class that is chanting and they're talking literally about Hindu gods and goddesses incorporating them into song. We're talking about an appropriation not only of the products, but the religion and spirituality of India. And so I think it's an interesting exploration on today's episode of if we are co-opting religion, practices, foods, science, and medicine from other cultures— but when we're not supporting them when we need it, it feels like this is sort of dropping the ball, right? In a way of not standing up for the very people that are giving us these things. And I think it begs the question where I want to hand it to you, Whitney, is, is how do you feel about, obviously you were doing a lot more research prior to me in the plight of Indian farmers, but this perspective of wealthy wellness influencers profiting off of this thing and not giving them any protection back. How do you feel about it? And how do you think we step up the accountability? I'm asking also for myself. And the reason I, I, I say that is because I've promoted this stuff for years. And I feel like I need to be more involved and do more things to protect these farmers and the very people that are providing these superfoods that I've been consuming for years and, and teaching people about. So where are you at with all this? And, and how do you feel we, you and I, and other wellness influencers and entrepreneurs ought to step up right now. What, what do you think we can do? What should we do? I hate that word. What would be a good idea for us to do? 
This article has a lot of great insight and tips. So certainly this is a phenomenal starting place. So again, this is the article we're referencing called Wellness Influencers Owe the Indian Farmers Their Solidarity. It's at bitchmedia.org and it's linked on our website, wellevator.com, along with any other resources we mentioned. So one of our big aims with this podcast is to make it easy for you to learn more about these topics. And when you go to our website and click on the podcast section, every single episode has a transcript. It has tweetables that you can share and it has a resource list at the end so you can go and take action. And this is actually something I'm incredibly passionate about right now, which is stepping out of my ignorance and noticing where I can use more education and being committed to it. So I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth reiterating again. I actually have it on my to-do list every single day to learn more about racism and to take some sort of action. And that action could be sharing something on social media, which is part of the point of the article that we're discussing today, which is it might not be a ton, but it's a step in the right direction. If you share something as simple as a tweet, you're sharing an article like the one we're referencing, you can share this podcast. If you feel it's helpful, you can post something on social media. You can speak about it in your own words. You could create a podcast of your own. All of those things are important. So what we're doing right now actually is a step in the right direction, not to pat ourselves on the back, but simply that this is one of those steps I'm committed to taking. There are petitions, there are phone calls that you can make, there are groups that you can get involved with. As Jason mentioned, it was, I don't remember the exact date, I feel like it was in February 2021 when I heard about what was going on with farmers and I learned that about that on Clubhouse and I asked, like, what what can I do? And and it all begins with that education, which starts after you have that awareness. So I became aware. I started to become more educated. And it's part of my commitment to learning and to sharing. So one of the things I do oftentimes is after I learn something, I put out a tweet because Twitter is a great, easy place to share something. It feels a little less involved for me with my mental energy to post on Instagram. But some people find that Instagram is a better place. Facebook is great too. I participate in Facebook groups. So for example, one place I go into almost every single day of the week is Parenting in a Tech World, which is a really impactful Facebook group. That's where I I go to learn and see how I can support parents with understanding how tech impacts their children. So certainly there are groups for pretty much any topic you're passionate about, and going into them, letting your voice be heard, but also listening and learning and sharing from those places too. So if social media feels like something that you want to use to spread the word, then Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest as well, sharing articles on there, just really finding one place where you can do something because it is a step in the right direction. And people do really appreciate it. People will learn, even if you help one person. You can have more conversations offline, of course. And then speaking of conversations, platforms like Clubhouse are great for this. I mean, if it wasn't for that group that I happened to go into that one night, I wouldn't have learned. So the people that started that discussion on Clubhouse deeply impacted my life. And I, when I saw this article... I don't remember exactly where I came across it. It could have been on Twitter. 
I wouldn't be surprised or some of the other places that I seek out information, which again is the other ripple effect of using social media for good is that you start to see articles that are in alignment with what you're posting and what you're searching for. So I'm a big advocate for really influencing the algorithm by liking, commenting, sharing content that you resonate with, following accounts that are generating something positive in your life. And the same thing goes with TikTok. I actually haven't been seeing much about this on TikTok. So that's a a cue to me that I could shift that by following some specific hashtags, right? So I have to take responsibility for the information I consume. Leading back to this article, there are a ton of great points that I would love to touch upon. I mean, I highlighted the article and so much of it is highlighted. It's almost entirely in in yellow highlights right now. So I just want to go through some of these things in bullet points to make it more clear. And highlighting actually is something else that you can do. Here's another tip is whether it's an article or a book, a magazine, a blog post, whatever, a transcript like our podcast, highlighting that text so that you can easily consume it just like you would in school. <laughs> this is one of my takeaways from studying is just highlighting text helps me take in that information and you can copy and paste that text into someplace else. You can take a screen capture of it. You can save it to a notebook. Like there's so many ways that you can really get that information into your brain and to other people's heads as well. And speaking it out loud too, that's a really helpful practice. If something like this feels overwhelming, having a conversation with someone else is great. In fact, I had a conversation yesterday with a friend about gun violence, and I didn't even realize how much I wanted to talk about it until I started the discussion. We were only going to chat for 30 minutes. It was never meant to be about gun violence, but it turned out to an hour and a half conversation. And just that one-on-one chat via Zoom was really impactful for me and it helped me process. It helped me see somebody else's viewpoints. It helped us find the things that we had in common. And it was like, okay, I'm a little bit more clear about how I feel on the subject matter and what actions I want to take. Now I'm going to add, you know, gun violence to the list (laughs) of things I want to research, right? But anyways, going back to this article, I'm going to read it out loud, which will help me and Jason and hopefully you as a listener really take in this information. So at the beginning, the article discusses how wellness influencers specifically depend the most on these farmers' livelihoods. And ironically, they also seem fine basking in their relative silence. And I'm, you know, as a somebody that would be categorized as a wellness influencer, I'm definitely not fine basking in silence. It's truly an issue of ignorance. And ignorance is my responsibility, but it's hard sometimes to know everything that's going on in the world. It can be very overwhelming. It could be exhausting. We can get burnt out on it. So this is why spreading the word and having these discussions is so important because if people that you know aren't talking about it, you may never come across it in the media. So I think that's one of the big points of this article is that wellness influencers are 
called influencers because they're influencing other people. So if you're going to be talking about a product that you used that is coming from India, that is rooted in Ayurveda, for instance, then tell the full story about where that came from. However, a lot of us, and I'm speaking collectively as wellness influencers, we're not even that educated in the source of something. So we have to take the responsibility to become more educated. Sometimes it really helps when a company leads with that transparency. So I am grateful for brands that write it on the label, put it on the box, send a piece of paper with a mailing or put something, you know, you know, when you get like a supplement, there'll be a piece of paper in there that has uh, some details about the product. I love stuff like that, even though it's a little wasteful. You could go to their website. If the website is helpful, then you can research that on your own, but that takes an, an extra step. So I think brands also, especially brands that have westernized Ayurveda, they need to take that extra step to educate consumers as well as influencers. Because I know if I'm talking about a product, typically I'm just picking it up. I mean, ironically, the first thing I looked at on my desk is turmeric, which is discussed in here. This is an Ayurvedic herb. And if I look at the packaging, this is from our, our friends at Truvani. It does have some details on it, but it says where it's manufactured. It doesn't say where it's grown that I can easily see, right? It doesn't say where turmeric originated from. It just touts off the fact that it's non-GMO, certified organic. It supports brain, digestive, and heart health. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, soy-free. You know, it's it's all of those bullet points. But I think what needs to be added on labels like this is where it comes from. And I think that's part of the brand's responsibility to do the same thing because as a wellness influencer, and I, Jason, you're not in your head, so I'm sure you want to chime in on this too. There's a tendency for us to just read off the label. And again, that's, our, that's kind of a, a habit that I'm not advocating for, but that is the tendency for most people is to read off these bullet points. And if these bullet points aren't including information about farmers, then many people, consumers included, will not know about it because most people I found are not going to go to the extra mile to learn more about the history of turmeric, right? I believe that Vani does have this information on her website. So I'm going to look on that when you talk about this, Jason, because Vani, who makes who runs this company, True Vani, is an incredibly educated person, very passionate about transparency. And I imagine that she has discussed this somewhere, but I will confirm while Jason's speaking. I remember the first brand that I was aware of, Whitney, on this subject that had such an incredibly deep and broad level of transparency with how they were growing their food and sourcing it is the company One Degree Organics. And I remember when we met Danny and Sandra, who run that company along with their family, from the get-go, when we were introduced to their cereals, their breads, their oatmeal, they always had a QR code on the back of the package that you could scan that would take you and introduce you to the actual farmer that grew the oats, the brown rice, the quinoa, whatever it was. And there's levels of quality and transparency. We talked about this with Max Goldberg a few months ago. We linked to his previous episode in the show notes. And Max has such a wonderful breadth of knowledge on not only the standards and practices, but these certifications, right? And so I think there's, there's these levels of 
trust that gets built with a company or a food product, depending on what these labels and these transparencies are, right? If I'm given the choice and you give me the the chance to buy a product that, yes, is organic, non-GMO, those things, but when we're talking about how the farmers are compensated, if it's fair trade for life, if it's fair trade certified, if it has a QR code a la One Degree Organics, where I can actually know the name of the farmer who grew the crops that are in this food. That to me is a much deeper level. And it, it makes me wonder why more brands don't do that. Is it just not cost effective? Do they think that maybe the consumer is not going to care? Like, hey, you know, do they really care? where these crops were grown, where these ingredients came from. But that's really the nature of what we're talking about in this episode is I think if we put a name and a face on the farmers that have grown the food that we're eating, kind of like going to the farmer's market, right? You actually meet the people who grew the food you are purchasing. There's a different kind of connection. And I think to your point, Whitney, if we buy a bottle of turmeric or holy basil or ashwagandha, goji berries, et cetera, and we don't really have that deeper connection. We're not thinking about how it was grown. Are these farmers being paid fairly? What kind of conditions are they working in? I mean, th- this is really a huge issue, not just in the food industry, but really in a lot of different industries. I mean, this comes up with electric cars and talking about the lithium salts that are being mined in different countries to make the batteries and how you know the lithium mining is is destroying a lot of natural water preserves and really destroying the water supply in certain communities to get these lithium salts for electric car batteries. That's a tangent. But the point is, the more that we know, not only can we stand up for and advocate for these communities in different ways, as we're saying, and also at the end of this article, there are some great links I want to mention because I know we're going to jump into other other parts of this article, Whitney, but we will also link to Kalsa Aid, Save Indian Farmers, Sahita, and save Punjab farmers. That's in this bitch media article. But my point is all this education and awareness, Whitney, allows us to say, okay, do I care about this enough to stand up for it and take action? Because it it is one thing, I think, to post on social media or repost stories. They talk about slacktivism in this article. They call it of just like, yeah, posting a few things on social. But to me, if I have the ability to funnel financial reserves for legal protections, right? In this case of the Indian farmers, or ensure that I can buy products that have a story, have transparency and are fair trade certified. Then again, we're voting with our dollars and we're putting our energy toward things that we hope are going to make a meaningful difference. It's a complicated subject matter because there's no easy answer. It's not like you can quickly fix anything. And I think Part of this conversation is that people look to these type of products to fix their lives. And there's a lot more going on. I mean, I, I researched a lot about this when I was writing my ebook, The Mindful Mug, because I was studying how looking really deeply into the ethics of coffee. And the reason, the inspiration for making that ebook was that I understand that a lot of people are incredibly ignorant about how coffee is grown. And there's so many factors involved that I get into in that book. I will say that going to... Now, uh, Vani Hari, the founder of Truvani, was born to Indian immigrant parents. So I imagine that this subject matter is close to her heart. It is not 
mentioned on her website that I could easily find. And I think that's something that can be improved. I think it it would be helpful if it was given more credit to where the origin story. But I think the reason that it's not is that oftentimes consumers don't seem to care. So that's a big part of this issue as well. And, and one of the big reasons we're talking about here on the show is that you, the listener, are likely a wellness product consumer. And sometimes we don't know what we don't care about. It's not, it's not like we are consciously not caring. It's that we're ignorant about what we should care about. And I think that one of the things that we can do is to ask companies like Truvani if they will speak up more about this. Now, maybe Vani has on her social media, but she is very active on social. So I'd have to comb through a ton of articles. And I imagine that Vani would address this with so much eloquence if she hasn't already. But we have to ask her to do that. We have to show interest. A lot of the ways that companies work is it's about consumer demand. They look for what consumers care about and they create products, they create marketing based around those things so that you know they can reduce the noise. I imagine like Truvani, for example, isn't getting into the whole history of turmeric because they don't want to bog down their consumers with too much information. So we need to voice that. So that's another action step for you is you as a consumer can reach out to companies and say, hey, I would really love for you to acknowledge the origin behind Ayurvedic practices. I'd love to know where this came from and not just like where it was grown, but where did it originate from? You can ask the same thing of your yoga teachers, right? Like there's a lot of whitewashing around that. So maybe ask them, like, hey, can you tell me a little bit more of the story? I actually used to go to a class at my yoga studio when I was going to in-person classes that was very much rooted in the history of yoga. And it was one of my favorite classes. And my teacher would actually read from a book and he would tell this whole story about like where these things came from and what they meant. And it was so helpful. But I have to hear that information over and over again because right now I couldn't even tell you a lot of things. It's just like school. You know, we we learn the history of our country, for example, but can you spout out those facts if you're not regularly speaking about them or studying them, brushing up on your knowledge? It's also similar to a language, right? So this is one of the reasons why I encourage myself and other people to make this somehow a part of your regular practice, speak these things out loud, have discussions around them, be committed to an ongoing dialogue about it and educating yourself, even if it's just for a few minutes a day, right? Like my anti-racism, I'm consistently studying, but sometimes I spend five minutes of it on it. I learn something, I share something and then I come back around to it to better understand it. We talk about a lot of those things here on the podcast, and this is clearly one of them. Another company I wanted to shout out for, for transparency, although, you know, they still don't have super clear information about the background, which I think is also due to the fact that it might confuse people. So Gaia Herbs is another supplement company I love. I have, I'm sure, one of their products just out of reach because I love them. They're actually one of my number one 
product lines in addition to Truvani. And Guy Herbs has been around for a lot longer than Truvani, so their their product offering is is much wider. I visited the Guy Herbs farm, similar to One Degree Organics, as you were talking about, Jason. They have transparency like that. You can go on their website. You can learn about their farmers. You can learn about their actual farm. They talk about where every ingredient comes from, and I really appreciate that. They do hint at some of the origin story of their ingredients. Maybe I'd have to dig a little bit deeper into their website, but it is pretty in-depth and it's very well designed. I know that they've been working on this and it's very impressive everything that they've done, but that's another company. Go explore. And if you don't find what you want on their site, let your voice be heard. And you might actually need to say it to a few different sources in a few different ways on a regular basis to really underscore how important this is to you. It's not always as simple as asking a company with one email or one tweet or sending it to just one person. You need to do this over and over again and really ask for a change. And if, if a company is not responding, if a company is not giving you a timeline, ask them for one and then see if you can get other people involved. I mean, you can start to become your own advocate for things like this or activist asking a few friends like, hey, do you use this product? If they do, like, would you be willing to help me contact this company? Here's an email I sent out. Here's the contact information. All you have to do is press send. Like, you can create those forms of activism really simply for your on your own if somebody else is already doing it, right? And you'd be surprised how much of a shift can happen. <laughs> An example right now that I'm seeing with brands is, I don't know if you heard about this, Jason, but as of this week, which is towards the end of March, 2021, there's a, a big emphasis or a big focus on Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Did you hear about this, Jason? It's really big on TikTok right now. It's not directly related to what I'm discussing, but it is an example of a movement happening. So a guy apparently opened up a bag of Cinnamon Toast Crunch and found dried shrimp tails in his cereal. And he sent a picture to to the Cinnamon Toast Crunch social media account, which was, I believe, General Mills. And they actually tried to minimize it And this guy wasn't having it. So he blew it up on social media. And now it's all over Twitter. It's all over TikTok. And the company is going to have to take responsibility for this. But it's kind of shocking the way that they tried to brush it under the rug. They literally tried to gaslight him, Jason, and say, oh, those aren't shrimp tails. Those just must be pieces of sugar that have like amalgamated. Is that is that crystallized? Yeah, something like that. Like they thought like some of the cinnamon and sugar at the bottom of the bag, like somehow formed to look like shrimp tails. But he has all these pictures. And then he went through the bag of cereal and found a string and what appears to be mouse droppings. So people suspect that a mouse got into this batch of cereal and potentially carried in trash like the shrimp tails and the quality control didn't catch it, which, you know, is forgivable if the company took responsibility for it. But he has all these receipts, as they call them, of the the conversations he had where they were trying to sweep it under the rug and like not take responsibility. They were trying to deny what happened. So that's an example of if a company is not willing to be transparent and make a change, 
these days, those companies can really get in trouble for that. And that actually puts a lot of power into the hands of consumers and influencers to make changes because we can speak out about this if we do it with confidence, with consistency, with force and clarity. If you are are creating a little movement around a change like this, like, for example, more history on the origin story of certain products and how they are connected to Indian farmers, for example, you might actually be able to make a change without a ton of time and effort. I had to look up these pictures just to just for my own sheer curiosity, Whitney. Those are definitely shrimp tails. And that definitely looks like rodent poop. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's like a mouse and two shrimp walk into a breakfast bar. You know, it's like how, how, how did the mouse get in and drag shrimp and dental floss. It's like the mouse was just having some lunch, decided to floss its teeth. And it's like, ah, I'm done. Fuck you guys. And that just ends up. I, I'm sorry. I just find this so biz- it's so bizarre. That's why I'm so amused by it. But absolutely, we we will link. There's an article I pulled up on CNET that came up one day ago that says the cinnamon toast crunch shrimp fiasco explained everything you need to know about those shrimp tails. So this has a link to all of the greatest tweets about this. Some hilarious tweets. Someone says normalize shrimp in breakfast cereals. This did blow up. And I think to your point, Whitney, it, it, it does show the power of not only leveraging social media to really get a brand and a corporation's attention about something that you're passionately angry about, but how something as biz- – and I think it's because this is also so bizarre, right? I mean, there's the anger and the vitriol from uh, General Mills gaslighting this guy, but also people's replies because it's just such a bizarre thread. So – it's really, really interesting as a case study. Again, we'll link to it in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. As a sort of side note to this conversation that's also related when we're talking about the aspect of cultural appropriation, Whitney, there, there's a part of this conversation if we go back to Ayurveda and we go back to the use of a lot of these really powerful products. I mean, ashwagandha, holy basil, rhodiola, turmeric, tribulus, macuna. I mean, I could list a a ton of these Ayurvedic herbs. They're not to be fucked with. I mean, they're very powerful, potent medicines that has been used. And Ayurveda has been around for what? I mean, you know, literally thousands of years. I think traditional Chinese medicine has maybe been around for 5,000. Ayurveda probably is close. Don't quote me on that. I mean, I should probably Google it or maybe maybe if you want to Google it quickly, Whitney, while I'm ranting, but it's been around for thousands of years. And one of the points in this article before I read it is that a lot of these wellness influencers are claiming to be experts in Ayurveda, claiming to be experts in traditional Chinese medicine, and they haven't gone through years of training, sometimes decades. I mean, true Ayurvedic doctors, true traditional Chinese medicine doctors go through years and years and years and years of study and practice and mentorship in these very ancient and cherished traditions. And one of the points of this article on Bitch Media is that there's a lot of people talking about how to use these herbs and these practices 
because they just went to like a weekend seminar or took a fucking course. And we see that a lot. No, we see it a lot here in Los Angeles. I mean, there was an infamous heyday of the Erwan Tonic Bar that you remember, Whitney, here. And anybody who's in L.A. who knows Erwan, there was an era of Erwan Market where you could go to the Tonic Bar and, you know, got, you know, God bless our friends Truth and Jay and and Ronnie and a lot of the, the, the great folks that used to work there. And, you know, I'm not besmirching anyone with this comment, but I always found it strange that people who had no direct training in TCM or Ayurveda would be like, oh, your head hurts. Oh, you're having gallstones here. You should try this supplement. Let me make a tonic for you. And it always struck me as funny as people dispensing really critical health advice to people who were not licensed or trained to do so. And now some people might go, well, Jason, that's disempowering the the mechanism of self-healing. Everyone should be their own doctor. We see that a lot. Be your own doctor. Don't trust, don't trust scientists and doctors. Be your own doctor. Which, yes, do your own research, be well informed, be well educated. But my point is that people prescribing these herbs and these practices who have not been adequately trained to do so is not only potentially dangerous, but it's also, to this article's point, insulting the very essence of these practices because they don't provide a complete education. It says here, given that Ayurvedic medicine and herbal healing and science are traditional family practices, the proliferation of short courses or online teachings in Western culture not only insults the very essence of these practices, but cannot, by virtue of its nature, ever provide a complete empowered education. These half-hearted attempts at studying other cultures are a disservice to the host origin culture and fail to address important flaws in systems of learning. And it goes on and talks about uh, Vedic spirituality's violent nature. That's a whole other loophole I didn't know about, which is one built on a caste-based oppression that continues to function in South Asian society today, inadequate research and a lack of in-depth research and engagement already prohibits such wellness actors, they call them wellness actors, from engaging in cultural appreciation. But it's their lack of effort put into crediting and compensating those whose good works and deep knowledge they rely on that is the most offensive. That's a huge for me, right? Because we see it's rampant, Whitney. Take this herb, do this thing, buy this superfood, take this $20 ginger shot. You know, and funny enough, in the article, they say very few attempts are made to fairly credit or remunerate the workers and farmers and practitioners who produce the ghee for extortionately priced bulletproof coffees and the ginger for $5 detox shots. With most wellness influencers having failed to ever make a single trip to India, let alone learn from non white teachers, their failure to provide credit to those with the particular knowledge, wisdom, and know-how on which they built their businesses and their social media followings are the malpractices that solidify this industry as culturally inappropriate. Claiming such knowledge as your own is a form of theft. It's pretty clear. And it gives me the tingles too, Whitney, because it makes me wonder how much as a chef and a wellness educator over the years that I have dropped the ball on this. Because I have certainly, as I mentioned at the beginning, talked a hell of a lot, again, about goji berries and reishi and shaga and ashwagandha and all these things. 
But have I honored the origins of those teachings? Have I honored, again, the farmers and where these came from and educated myself enough on all of this? And I haven't. And so in doing this, I want to take full responsibility for my ignorance and my lack of honoring the traditions from which these practices came from while I've built a business in food and wellness, not fully honoring and recognizing where these came from as well. So as I say this, I have to hold myself accountable and call myself out on this because I've done the same damn thing and I want to do better. I want to do better too. And I imagine that our listener does. And this is not to say that we aren't aren't guilty of, of any of these things. I think the intention was that we were doing more good than harm. And I'm very grateful these things are coming to light to give me something to reflect on. And I, as part of that reflection, think about why we have that tendency to share things that we're not fully educated in. And this is something that I did a lot more when I was younger, when I was a newer content creator, I would just like read something and think that I was really knowledgeable about it. And it was the whole picture. And I I think part of me knew that I didn't know that much about it. But in the early days of of my YouTube career and blogging and all of that, I was I was just like wanting so passionate to share what I knew, what I was learning, but not really seeing the full picture and, and ignorant of the fact that I was only seeing a fraction of it. And that got perpetuated because I was seeing other influencers and other so-called health and wellness experts doing the same thing. So I thought, okay, like this is how everybody operates. We talk about something, we do a little research, we we read a description, and then we educate people. And over time, I've been learning to acknowledge my ignorance and to share where I'm knowledgeable and where I'm not and be transparent about this. And I am just continuing to be clear about who I am, what I know, what my background and what my training is, where am I getting this information? For example, I, I'm very upfront, especially when I'm coaching that like, I'm not a doctor. So I'm not trying to prescribe anything. Like I'm not going to say that ashwagandha is going to solve things. Like to your point, Jason, like this, be your own doctor. I understand the intention it's very empowering, but I don't have the background, the degree, the education to advise somebody on that. And it could be incredibly dangerous. And I think this is part of the reason that people take issue with someone like Gwyneth Paltrow. She's a white woman. She's got a lot of money. She's got a lot of connections. She's been able to make this whole career, build this empire. I actually think a lot of the work that she's doing is important because wellness is important and she's made it very trendy. She's introduced a lot of interesting things to people, but sometimes that gets misconstrued as like the right way to do something. I think that there's a tendency for it to feel like it's based in privilege, like it's something that only people with money have access to, like it's something that is about, again, the right way or the wrong way to do things. I think there's certainly a tendency for it to be seen as trendy or maybe not fully incorporating non-white people or people of different size bodies or on and on. Like there may perhaps there's some discrimination. 
I haven't really dug into it recently to see different perspectives on it. And people get very upset with her work. And I think that there is a bit of a capitalistic drive for the work that people like Gwyneth Paltrow do and a a drive for power and ego. Like, I'm going to make so much money if I do this, if I release this book, if I share these products. Ooh, we can charge so much for these products. And it's like, well... Do you need to charge that much? Like, how, who are you leaving out when you charge a certain rate? Are you, where's that money going towards? Are you donating money, for example? Are you really caring? Are you getting involved with the activism? Are you acknowledging the roots of, of these things and who's making them and where are they coming from? I don't know if there's enough transparency around that. And I think, unfortunately, it's not just about Gwyneth Paltrow, because for me, like from an energetic level, I feel like she's an incredibly well-meaning person, but I'm pretty ignorant on her. Like I haven't, I've not studied that much about Gwyneth Paltrow. That's just my view of her. She seems like a kind person that means well. I think she's also surrounded by a lot of people that might be a bit money hungry. So my guess is that it's not just about Gwyneth. There are so many people involved in her company and her projects like on Netflix, her books, you know, like, People see that opportunity to work with Gwyneth Paltrow. They see that power. They see the dollar signs. That's oftentimes where the corruption happens. It's kind of like we can't blame everything on our president because the president is not the only person involved with what's going on in the country. Like there are so many other decision makers and each of them has their own agenda. And there's certainly corruption going on in there, too. So you know, I'm not going to put all the blame on Gwyneth Paltrow, just like I wouldn't put all the blame on Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden. Like, that's very ignorant for us to make those assumptions. I'm not going to put all the blame on on Vonnie Hari, you know, if, if I don't feel like she's done enough because she's got other people involved in her company and other decision makers. And there's a lot that goes into it. So another tip that I have is like, don't be so quick to blame people and get angry at people. Why don't you go in and try to do something productive and say like, okay, this person has done a lot to educate us on, on turmeric, right? Like even this article says like turmeric became very trendy, I think in 2008 because of Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm grateful for it. When I think about turmeric, I don't think about Gwyneth Paltrow, but Maybe she was involved with me learning more about turmeric. Maybe she's the reason that Vani Hari made a turmeric and got passionate about making it organic and well-sourced and good for the environment. Like, maybe we should actually thank her for that. But there's another level involved there where we need to start taking a deeper look at what's going on. And that comes down to our personal responsibility of educating ourselves and being activists. There's a great article I'm going to link to in the show notes. Uh, Jason was talking about slacktivism or clicktivism. And actually, the Bitch Media article references this one. It's on bbc.com. And it gets into the details around how online activism actually can be effective We just can't be self-deluded to think that liking, sharing, or retweeting or resharing something is actually helping out, right? So we have to do more. As I said at the beginning, I think that is a step in the right direction. It's better than nothing, but we need to actually get involved. And there are many different ways to get involved with things like this. Jason mentioned how at the end of this Bitch Media article, there is links to how you can donate to organizations like Save Indian Farmers. 
So you you can get involved with their individual organizations. Uh, you can go into their GoFundMe's. You can follow these people. You can read about them. This article is really meant to raise awareness and point out an issue here. I also love how the end of the article says that maybe instead of starting this morning's practice with a Sanskrit chant, it would be more meaningful and fulfilling to ensure one is not complicit in impressing those who are unable to transform their ancestral and local knowledge into profit-churning empires. So we, I mean, I got to acknowledge, I have so much privilege. I, I am trying not to take that for granted. The fact that I have the money to pay for a yoga class is a privilege. The fact that I have the money to buy the sustainable yoga mat that was, or actually Jason, you gave me my yoga mat as a gift, but still the fact that you had the money to gift me with like an $80 yoga mat, right? That is made from a sustainable company that you wanted to support. Like those are all privileges that we have. And it's, it does not end there. We need to think about like who made these things Where did they come from? And how can we support the people that aren't getting the money, that don't get the profits from the yoga studios or the turmeric capsules or the yoga mats or or the beads, the mala beads you mentioned, Jason? Like, is are we buying something to culturally appropriate it? Or are we buying it because it's trendy? Are we buying it because it looks cool? Or are we buying it because we understand the deep meaning behind mala beads and what they represent? Did we buy them from a company where the money actually goes towards people that need the money? Or are we buying it from somebody who's turning it around like fast fashion? We have to look into these things. And that's where our personal responsibility is crucial. Amen to all all of that, Whitney. I mean, at the end of the day, I really feel like whenever we are spending money, we are voting. We think of voting as the general election or the presidential election or the runoffs or whatever it is. But money is embodied energy and where we put our dollars and where we put that energy has a massive ripple effect. And I think just to back up your point earlier about a lot of these products not being accessible to to people in certain income levels, that's something that I, I feel super uncomfortable about, you know, is I get it. You know, I understand people's judgments of the wellness industry because I think that they are are spot on in a lot of ways. If people are like, okay, wait, you're online recording videos telling me to improve my health, but then you're trying to sell me a $19 bag of goji berries, or you're trying to sell me a $5,000 sauna, or you're trying to send, you know, sell me a biohacking program for $10,000. I get it. And those criticisms and observations are absolutely valid. They're not only more than valid, they're, they're accurate. And so I think if we talk about wellness and we talk about health and well-being, we have to realize that a, a huge portion of this industry very much is skewed toward privileged and wealthy people. Because a $10,000 course and a $5,000 sauna and a $10 tonic and a $20 bag of berries, a person who's living on food stamps or a person who's living near the poverty line, this is not even a consideration. And if we blow this out into healthcare in general, because I'll put, I'll put wellness under healthcare, Whitney, if you have money... You have access to the absolute best care possible. You have access to the best doctors, the best surgeons, the best oncologists, the best foods and products. And and I think that that is very dangerous in the sense that if the wealthy and the privileged are the only ones who have access to these things, 
ultimately it's not good because we're abandoning the concept of well-being for a huge portion of the human population if we make it that inaccessible. I don't know what the solution is, right? Because you have corporations who want to profit and be in business. But to your point, I wonder, you know, is it a supply and demand thing in the sense that do they just need to manufacture more of it and then the prices will go down? I mean, that seems to be kind of a, a basic concept of consumerism is the more that you make, the prices go down per unit because you're dealing in volume. I don't know if it's that simple, but I think, you know, in closing, my biggest concern here is yes, the cultural appropriation the ignorance around where our food comes from and who grew it and distributed it. But beyond that, the exclusivity of these things to only a select few individuals who can afford it. And then everyone else is just left to fend for themselves as, as part of the bigger healthcare picture. And, you know, does that mean that eventually the U.S. is going to shift out of a privatized system and go toward universal healthcare? I would hope so. You know, I'm not a socialist per se, but I think having affordable, good health care for all citizens of a country is probably a good idea. It's my opinion. Some people may disagree. But I think in general, Whitney, I don't know. I want to sit and think about how to do this because as you and I are going to be going hopefully back to trade shows later this year and looking at these products, I think I'm going to be looking at them with a different kind of eye in the sense of like, who's this for? Who are you like asking a brand, who are you making these for? I don't know. I personally want to be more educated and do more and take more responsibility for my role in all of this and try and shift the scales toward making these products and services accessible to more people. Don't know how I'm going to do that in this moment, but the question and the curiosity is there. And it's part of a bigger conversation. I agree. And I, I think that this calls for real transparency and not performative transparency from these companies. Because unfortunately, just based on how capitalism works, when somebody sees someone putting QR codes on their products, it's like, oh, yeah, like we're transparent too. We'll put a QR code on there and you can scan and see our farmers. And and I mean, it does take a lot of education. It's, this reminds me of an episode that we did, speaking of organic, with Max Goldberg and his life is dedicated to studying organic living. And it takes a lot of work. So if you're feeling overwhelmed in this moment, I really think that if you can just dedicate five minutes a day to, to research something, it really goes a long way. And understanding the roots of what you're buying will raise your awareness. If you spread the word to other people, you have conversations with other people and kindly, I know this can be very heated. That is an art form in its own, having conversations with friends and family members about think topics like this and understanding that there are a lot of people that are very ignorant. It can feel like an uphill battle and in many ways it is, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. If you can donate even a dollar, that is making a difference. So one thing that I'm actually working on, Jason, is to put aside some of my income to make a donation at least once a month for something that I'm passionate about. And I've talked about in other episodes, like right now I'm working my way towards being debt-free and that will give me more freedom to put my money towards something other than <laughs> paying off a balance and interest and all that. And so even right now though, I want to take a look and see like, 
if I can just donate a dollar like that, it's, it's truly putting my money where my mouth is. Right. And so maybe that's buying one less thing or getting a deal on something like maybe you, you can create a rule for yourself. If you find a coupon code for something, maybe it's a dollar off something that you typically are going to buy, take that dollar you saved on that product and donate it somewhere. My mom actually has this mentality, mostly for paying off credit card debt. She says, if you make some unexpected money, you receive an unexpected check, you get a good savings on something, that's an opportunity to pay down your debt. Well, what if you applied that towards donations? Because we're listing, I mean, at the bottom of this article, there's at least four different organizations that are doing work to support the farmers in India. What if you divided up some money and donated to all of them? That is makes a huge impact. As I said, you can sign petitions too. So if money's really tight, which I get, sometimes even a dollar feels like a stretch. If you sign a petition, if you spread the word about a petition, if you even just share a GoFundMe or donation page, that is making a difference. You can use your voice to demand action from the government. So whether it's our government in the US, if it's the government in other countries that are involved with issues like this, Go find out what's happening and see what action you can take. That All of those actions, either combined or on their own, make a difference. And if you want to call somebody out, my other encouragement is to not cancel them unless they're doing something really horrific, but hold them accountable and kindly say, hey, I would love if you did X, Y, Z. What you're doing right now is great. Like again, Gwyneth Paltrow, if you want to use her as an example, we don't need to cancel her, in my opinion. Out of ignorance, I don't know if she's done anything cancel-worthy, right? But what if instead we encouraged her to add something more to her website to support someone specifically? And doing that is more beneficial, I believe, because people tend to react more openly. And we do too, actually, to your point, Jason. We've had emails from people that said, hey, like we've noticed you haven't represented this type of person on your show. We've noticed the way that you speak is not inclusive. We take all of that into consideration and we're working on it. It might not be super fast. For example, like using the pronouns is something that I still need to work on, right? Like, but I'm chipping away at it. So give people time and grace because it's a lot to take on. But don't be afraid to let your voice be heard. And that same goes for us. Like As I'm thinking about this, Jason, I would love to have someone else of Indian heritage on our show. I think Vani might be the only person off the top of my head, right? Like we're really working on diversity in terms of our podcast guests. But I don't know, if, you know how far we've gone so far. So um, I would love to have different types of people on our show that can talk about this with more education. So I'll, I will definitely look into that as well. Well, I appreciate you, the listener, for coming on this journey with us, for exploring this, for being open-minded, for being willing to take some action and examine your participation in this as well and take a look at the whole world and how it plays a role in this. It's a lot we know that these episodes can feel heavy at times and they can feel overwhelming. So we w- really want to acknowledge you for being committed to expanding your education and your awareness, opening your mind and your heart up to these issues. It really means a lot to us that you listen. Like we said, we are always open to hearing from you. If you have something that you would like to share 
uh, whether it's a compliment or some constructive criticism or a suggestion, you can easily reach us through our website where it's kind of the hub for everything. It's wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. That has a link to our email, a link to all of our social media. Every single episode of the show has a comment section as well as the transcript I mentioned, the resource list. So we make it really easy from our perspective for you to get in touch with us. Uh, We have an email newsletter that we send out. So you can always reply to that newsletter if you receive it. We read every single email and message that we receive. Sometimes it takes us a little bit of time to get back to you, but we will do it as soon as we can. And that conversation is very important to us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If it resonates with you, you can hit subscribe. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can share this with somebody else you think might enjoy it. You can leave us a review, which just lets us know your feelings on the show. And we will be back with another episode. We release them every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Friday are our days with guests. So stay tuned because it is my aim to bring on some more people that can speak to this matter. And hopefully we'll be bringing that to you very soon. Thank you, everyone, and we'll be back with another episode in just a few days. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.